If you are receiving this transmission, you are reclaiming the faith with Phil Baker on the Fourth Watch Radio Network. Welcome to episode 18 of Reclaiming the Faith, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. I'm your host, Phil Baker. Now let's dig into history. Hey everyone, thank you so much for taking time to listen to Reclaiming the Faith. Thank you so much for praying for me and for my podcasting partners. Well, episode 18 is the fourth and final installment of my series on genuine historic revivals, where I interview my podcasting partner, BDK of Omega Frequency. And in part four, we discuss the last couple of questions. First, If a revival happens amongst a body of believers, how would that revival maintain itself? And then, what are a few things that can quench a revival? And we close out the show with BDK sharing a few uh, extra thoughts that God was putting on his heart as we were kind of closing things out. If you're blessed by this episode... I'd really appreciate it if you'd take some time to leave an honest review on my iTunes channel, Reclaiming the Faith. That way people will be able to find it much easier. And if you have any questions, please feel free to contact me at my website, reclaimingthefaith.podbean.com, or email me at emailphilsbaker at gmail.com. In 2016, I wrote a book called New Wineskins and the Simple Words of Christ, And you can find this book on Amazon. And again, if it's a blessing to you, please leave an honest review there. And some of y'all have been reading it and leaving reviews there. And my goodness, they have been such a blessing to me, such an encouragement to me that the message of this book is is reaching people that I never dreamed possible. And um, God is being glorified. And I'm so thankful for that. Well, uh, I am blessed to be a part of Justin Falls' Fourth Watch Radio Network, along with BDK of Omega Frequency, who I do a monthly Q&A show with called Ready With An Answer. And you can contact BDK at OmegaFrequency.com, and you can send in questions for that Q&A show uh, at that website. In addition to our own channels, you can find each of our podcasts at the Fourth Watch Radio website or on the 4th Watch Radio podcast. And finally, the early Christian quotes I use can be found on the CD-ROM version of the Anti-Nicene Fathers. And you can purchase your copy for $5 on the Scroll Publishing website. All right, well, let's get episode 18 rolling. Leonard Ravenhill has so many amazing sermons, so many amazing books and just quotes. And one of my favorite quotes from him about revival is you never have to advertise a fire. Everyone comes running when there's a fire. Likewise, if your church is on fire, you will not have to advertise it. The community will already know. And uh, it's kind of similar to one of those stories you were telling where just the six, 600 just kind of show up, you know, 
because the glory of God's hovering over the church in a, in a sense, right? Like they're being yeah. drawn by God. There was no advertising being done. And so like if a church is on fire, revival's happening. So if a revival happens amongst the body of believers, how does it maintain itself? Like what are some things that a church can do to maintain that that revival? So this is actually a very short and simple answer. And it might be the least thing that we talk about in the podcast because the answer is so short and simple, but it's actually one of the most challenging things to do, especially when it comes to church leadership. Revival is maintained through the obedience of God's people to be led solely by the Holy Spirit and to be conformed to his character. Hmm. Let me say that again. Revival is maintained through the obedience of God's people to be led solely by the Holy Spirit and to be obedient and to be transformed into the likeness of his character. Real revivals mostly come unannounced, like you said, right? They come unplanned, unhyped. They come in response to Second Chronicles 7.14. What God needs is to prepare a bush so that he can set it on fire so that when Moses is walking by, he sees something strange and says, what's that? Let me go investigate that, right? It was God directing him, saying, look, turn your head. And then he sees something he's never seen before, a bush on fire. Revival is God preparing a bush, right? In the basics of simplest terms, it's like God is preparing a place so that if he's waking people up in the middle of the night and getting people's attention or People, the bar is closing and he's getting people's attention or the whores are freaking out in the whorehouse and he's getting people's attention. They have to go somewhere, right? I mean, God isn't going to just suddenly show up and invade a community and, and rock them and bring the fear of God upon a community without a place to lead them. Right? Hmm. I mean, God's a God of order. He does nothing without a purpose. What he's trying to do is get a, is to get a bush or, or something that he can just set on fire. So that people know where to go when, when the times of refreshing come. So, you know, like he comes in response to that second Chronicles 714. Like we said before, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves, pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways. I'm going to hear from heaven, forgive their sins. And then that will heal their land. When, when it comes to God answering the prayer of revival, he's really answering the prayer of Psalm 85. Right? Just turn us, O God, O God of our salvation, and cause thine anger towards us to cease, because God's angry at sin. Wilt thou be angry at us forever? He's talking to the church. Wilt thou draw out thine anger to all generations? Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? Show us mercy, O God. Grant us thy salvation. Surely his salvation is nigh to those that, what? Fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land or his presence may dwell in our land. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth shall spring out of the earth and righteousness shall look down from heaven. God is running the heavens. He's coming down. Righteous and mercy and peace are going to kiss each other, right? This is God drawing nigh to those who fear him so that his glory or his presence is dwelling amongst us so that righteousness and peace can meet 
or kiss. And this is where the rubber hits the road, man. God's not going to share his glory with man. He's not going to share his glory with programs. He's not going to share his glory with religious formulas. It's like that thing that happened in Virginia, right? God was there. He was working amongst the people. And then the flesh got involved, Phil, and the Holy Spirit left. A church that wants revival and spends more time investigating the programs they have and the marketing and the retreats and the orders of services and who they're installing, this, that, and the other thing, instead of investigating the heart of God in prayer meetings, won't have real revival. Because if God did show up and he wanted to take over your whole entire church and make it a burning bush for your community to see— and he wanted to do that over the course of a year and do super sovereign, super sovereign, supernatural effects that match the book of Acts. And the things that we've been talking about for the last hour, most churches aren't prepared for that. They're not prepared to scrap the order of service. They're not prepared to scrap the programs and just let God lead every night. Or worse yet, many churches don't want the quickening. They want the mercy and the peace of revival, but not the righteous fear of God to kiss that peace. You see, most pastors fear man and what man will say if they call a church to do a fearless moral inventory of themselves to, to call out, to pray for revival. I mean, look at the account of Duncan Campbell, right? Those people were like, the youth won't come to church anymore. They're hanging out at the show houses and the dance halls. Now to us, that seems like a real trivial thing. That's how far away we've gotten today. We don't see any problem in that or sin in that. As a matter of fact, we just turn our churches into concert halls and make them even better looking than the show house with rock music and whatnot. Right. And we're not worried that Christians are drinking and hanging out in bars anymore. And I know that a lot of pastors and their members are doing that. And a lot of times pastors join members of their congregation and bars for social drinking. And I know that there's a lot of debate over whether a Christian can drink and whatnot. And I'm just saying this, I'm not trying to get into that debate. I'm just saying that there was a time when the remnant was like, Nope, that's shenanigans. If we see, we see this stuff as evil as going to a whorehouse. Even if I'm a blind little old lady who fasting is medically dangerous for, I'm going to fast nonstop, even though I'm in poor health so that there can be a revival. I'd take that over our pussyfooting around sin. But see, that's the thing, man. He's called the Holy Spirit. The first thing he's going to do if he shows up, he's going to reveal his holiness to you so that you can see your unholiness, so that you'll be holy as he's holy. And most revivals have trouble either starting or sustaining because that's a real messy process, dude. That's people's sins being publicly exposed and publicly wept over and repented of. And that's messy that's sensational and it's controversy. Imagine what would happen if your pastor got up and admitted to lusting over another person's wife. And don't say that that won't happen because how many of us, Jesus said, if you commit adultery in your wife, why? You, you look at lust with another woman. How many men listening to this podcast right now can say that they'd never had a moment of that? I can't raise my hand and say I'm pure in that area. Like, I don't indulge it, but I've had the thoughts. Most, most Christians look at more pornography than unsaved people, Phil. If the Holy Ghost started exposing that in your church, and then on top of that says, you know, I'm going to make a demand. 
You're going to scrap all of this so that I can just move. It's like wineskins bursting, dude. See, this is God being in charge. Oh. Yeah. Right. And either he's going to be in charge or he's not going to have any part of it because God will not share his glory with another man. I mean, that's the whole purpose of revival. The whole purpose of revival is revealing Christ so that we can see Christ and have an accurate representation of Christ in our mind so that we want to become more like Christ. Right. But if all we're doing is seeing man and man's programs, that won't contain it. And I think like we want revival, but we also want to be in charge of that revival. Right. Yep. We, we love declaring that God is in charge, but it's also one of the things that we fear the most actually happening in our services like God actually coming and like taking over because things would get so in our viewpoint out of control. Right. Like think about it from like revelation two, revelation three. Like if God, if Jesus was allowed to do the work that he wanted to do in their churches, it would create all of this upheaval in the church, in their regular way of doing things, even in places like Ephesus where Things are going, a lot of things are going well in one sense, like they're doing good works, right? He commends them for some, some good things, except there's no love in it. You know, if Jesus got in the pulpit and started saying, you guys are doing a lot of great things and it means nothing in eternity because faith without love means nothing, you know? The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And so like if God actually took charge, it would get messy. It would get unpredictable. It would not be seeker friendly in in our minds, right? In our vantage point. In God's vantage point, it's completely in order, right? Mm -hmm. 100% in order and beautiful and powerful. But in our vantage point, it's like chaos a lot of times to, and, and like tearing down our vision for what we desire for our church, you know? And it's so scary. It's really scary to have God in control really. And it, I don't know. I think this is like a huge temptation for so many ministers. Um, just to, to not, or the temptation is to, to resist control, controlling the church. You know, does that make sense? What I'm saying? It, it makes total sense. And when we get to the next point, I'm going to put the counterbalance to that. Sure. And it'll make even more sense, man. Yeah, man. So like the more that we allow God to stay in control, you know, with these clear signs of what true revival looks like, if people are still genuinely confessing their sins, if real repentance is happening, if, if people are being one to the Lord, you know, even people like, like Wesley who thought they were saved and they're like, no, I wasn't saved. You know, yeah. you know, if that kind of stuff is really happening, if reconciliation is happening, you know, amongst people, you know, if, if, if people are being drawn deeper and deeper into prayer, you know, if, 
all, all these signs that we've already laid out, if that stuff's happening, no matter how weird it seems to us, and if it's biblical, right? If you can see it in scripture too, and it's not just like barking like dogs, like we've talked about, but then, I mean, we just kind of have to let it go. Right. Yeah. And get out of the way and make ourselves available to not lead, but to follow God, let God lead. Yep. So those are just some spontaneous thoughts I'm having in my head, man. So hope that's, no, that's right on dude. Okay. Well, you want to move on to our last question? Yeah. All right. So here, let, let's talk. It kind of piggybacks pretty well. What are a few things that can quench a revival? Well, there are three things that will quench a revival and three things that have historically quenched every single revival. The first one is when man seeks to promote himself over the Holy Spirit or to make a name off of his ministry. Like I'm an evangelist that brings revival to so-and-so. I have, I move in a unique revival anointing or when a church begins to promote itself as this place of revival, when they begin to put pride into it, the Holy Spirit will leave and that will quench a revival. The second thing is when man seeks to enshrine revival or make it function as a program that will quench it. The perfect example is D.L. Moody, right? He was a revivalist. He was a powerful evangelist. He thought he was filled with the Holy Spirit until one day he realized he wasn't. <laughs> because one of his Sunday school, because one of his Sunday, little old, you know, blue-haired grandma Sunday school leader came to him and started talking to him about the Holy Spirit. And he realized what she had, he didn't have. Wow. And so, like, it, it, it made him undone. And 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 he became a powerful evangelist, man. And you can read his accounts of this. I mean, he has accounts of this written in his own hand, and it's it's an amazing story, dude. But like D.L. Moody, man, revivalist, evangelist. But that whole thing got shut down, and it became denominationalized and became a cemetery and a building. Hmm. Oh man, I always say that, don't I? Cemetery, I mean seminary. And I don't mean that on purpose. Well, I just always say it. I always say it every time I do a podcast. I, I mean to say seminary and I always say cemetery. And I don't mean it like that. I'm not trying to rip on seminaries because seminaries are have, have a place, dude. And, and I believe sometimes it's in a good place and sometimes it's in a cemetery. Yeah. And that's the thing, dude. The Moody Bible Institute. It's a good thing, dude. But is it even close to matching the exploits of the guy it's named after? Hmm. Think about that for a moment. When we see when we seek to add our own formulas and agendas or denominational preferences, or we try to make a supernatural move of God fit into our denominational filters and our lenses and whatnot, old wineskins will burst and revivals will be quenched. Right. I mean, did you ever wonder why most revivals and awakenings awakenings don't really historically come from pastors, but they come from evangelists or lay people that God uses? And then he brings into the area he wants to revive because this will bring us to our our third way that a revival's quenched. Can I just piggyback on that? Just the verse yeah. that came into my mind, just God using the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak things, the small things, you know, that makes total sense that it would generally not come through pastors. Yeah, but pastors play such an important part, though. And this they, is like the counterbalance yeah, to what you were saying critical. before. 
because they're overseers, right? Right. How are a they going to oversee a, that meeting? Yeah. A pastor is an overseer. He's a shepherd. He's yep. there to guard his sheep from the wolves. So pastors, like I'm not anti-pastor and pro-lay person or pro-evangelist, but there's a reason why God always seems to work things out in this particular way, because God is a God of order and decency, right? right. And I'm a Pentecostal dude, and I'm saying that. Like he has purposes and plans, the fivefold ministry, all of that stuff. Right. When, when, when a revival's going on, my pastor's like a guard dog, dude. Right. He's up on that stage, man. He's overseeing things, right? The evangelist might be leading the service, right? Like Evan Roberts would do. Like he would watch and see what the Holy Spirit's doing. The Holy Spirit's having its way. Then Evan Roberts might go over and pray with someone or he might exhort someone or he might get and preach. And then people might be praying and they might be singing and stuff like that. But like what always happens in every single revival, people start getting emotional. Hmm. People, their flesh starts getting involved. They start doing things in the flesh, right? These fleshly manifestations of emotionalism start creeping in and they become distractions and it messes up revival. This is the, this is the kid that like basically wanted to do a me too thing and get up and confess his sin. But he was really just like trying to bring attention to himself. Yeah. Like the pastor needed to pull that guy off stage. Or like if you're in Pentecostal churches and sister so-and-so every time she gets prayed for has to fall out. Right, right. Or shriek or bark. And you know, like all this stuff is going on. All these fleshly manifestations start creeping in. What's the pastor supposed to be doing? Hmm. Supposed to be overseeing this, right? Yeah. Like Evan Roberts is overseeing and watching and moving in partnership with the Holy Spirit. But the pastor's making sure that the flesh doesn't come in and shut the thing down. Hmm. So the pastor isn't setting up programs he, and, and leaning on the arm of the flesh. He's there to make sure the programs don't happen and that the arm of the flesh is cut off. Yeah, yeah. It's so counterintuitive, revival is. But that's like God, right? Because our minds have been corrupted. And so God is trying to renew our minds to have the mind of Christ. So we have to keep on putting off the flesh because the flesh and the spirit are at war against each other. And so this pastor has to really be prayerful during this time, you know, with his eyes open, you know. And if he isn't, that's when bad stuff happens. And I'll give you a perfect example of this. This is one that hits close to me because I was classical Pentecostal when I was going to Bible school in the assembly of God, training to be a pastor and evangelist. That's when the revival in Brownsville broke out. Hmm. And um, if you and and like we saw the video testimonies from Stephen Kilpatrick, who a lot of people thought was a legitimate man of God. And at one time he was a legitimate man of God who had a hunger for a God. He wanted to see revival in Pensacola more than anything. And he would bring in solid people like Ravenhill. He would bring in people like David Wilkerson, Dimitri and Dudeman into his church. He would talk about the destruction that was coming to America. If people wouldn't pray, he, he, he was so desperate and hungry for revival. But what happened was his wife, his minister of music and the evangelist that was going to be preaching at the Brownsville revival had all found their way to the Toronto airport blessing. Now the pastor didn't go because he was leading the church, but the wife, the music minister and the evangelist got laid out in the spirit and all these shaking manifestations and all this crazy stuff started happening to them. And they brought that back. Right. Hmm. And then the, the evangelist starts preaching and he's preaching a solid revival message. Like Stephen Hill 
was a solid revivalist preacher. He preached sin. He preached turn or burn. I mean, like if you just looked, if you were to take a book of this dude's sermon, you would think you'd be reading something by, by Finney or Moody or Wesley. But because he was exposed to strange fire, that's what was brought in. Now, John Kilpatrick job at this point when the shaking started happening and all these crazy manifestations that were going on at Toronto started happening and they started happening instantaneously on Father's Day. John Kilpatrick should have stood up and said, hey, we're going to investigate this a little bit. <laughs> we got to make sure that that we want to we want to separate the chaff from the wheat. We want to make sure that the good revival preaching that's going on is leading to repentance because bad things move in. But Stephen Hill came up to him, laid his hands on him and said, receive the Holy Ghost, brother. And instead of John Kilpatrick being like, nope. I, I have a job to do. I'm, I'm the overseer. He got laid out. And in John Kilpatrick's own word, for the next several weeks, he would just spend, whenever the services were going on, he would just spend them laying on the ground, shaking, convulsing, and in a state of a trance. Totally advocating his responsibility to be the overseer. And this is what's so dangerous, Phil. Because let's tie this back to the Bible. Let's tie this back to the book of Acts, right? Like, you have the apostles, and then you have these deacons or these evangelists like Stephen, like like Philip, right? Hmm. And they're going. These are laymen, right? Basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 Philip goes into Smyrna. Um, Samaria, Samaria. I'm sorry, Samaria. It's a long. It's it's everyone listening. It's super late at night, y'all. It's it's (laughs) past midnight, or it's almost midnight. Yeah. So he goes into Smyrna or uh, uh, Samaria, Samaria. (laughs) Right, right. He goes there, dude, and revival breaks forth. Right. Yeah, it does. Yeah, an awakening actually, Hmm. and um, you know, demons are being cast out. The gospel's being preached. Through the hands of this this Laban, God has worked some miraculous stuff. Hmm. But like instead of it just staying there, what did they do? They sent for the overseers, right? Right. Like they had to bring them down. So like Peter and the apostles show up and they're gonna oversee this thing. Because the first thing that Satan does is really telling. Satan doesn't seek to shut the revival down because he knows he can't. He can send all the demons he wants in there, they're just getting cast out. So what's he do? He seeks to infiltrate it with the occult and sorcery. Because what, what happens? Simon the magician, right? Comes in and he's like, I want to get saved. I want to do the same things you're doing. I, I want the power too. give me the power to baptize people in the Holy Ghost. And, and what does Peter say? Cool. Um, Hey, Philip's over here preaching. Philip, come lay hands on me. I'm going to lay down for a little while. You uh, take that that offering because we do we do love our offerings, and um, you get that guy you get that guy in. He's he's a he's a well-known magician. It'll lend credibility to the revival. Is that what he says? <laughs> Not exactly. No, he basically says your money be damned. Right. And 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 bad things happen. Because that's the overseeing, which is really important to understand. Because nine times out of ten, Satan can't hinder a revival if it's God sent. But what he does is he seeks to infiltrate it. 
He, he seeks to bring in acts of the flesh, the occult, witchcraft, and he tries to make it indistinguishable from the good things that are going on through people that are in operating in the flesh. And to operate in the flesh is to operate in rebellion, and rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. So, like, if revival is really going to happen in your church, pastor, you have such an important job to play. You need to be a guard dog up on that stage, man. You need to, you need to be looking for the things that you would normally champion, and you need to be like, nope. And you, and you need to, like, realize that God's ways are higher than your ways and that God, the way that God thinks is higher than the way that we think. And you need to be the shepherd that God has called you to be. And it's so important because otherwise revival is going to be quenched. It's going to be quenched. You know, just as we're kind of coming to the end, uh, <laughs> got my dog Zeke up here. He's scratching himself. Come on, <laughs> Zeke. Um, <laughs> yeah. He's, he's the real big daddy. He's the big guy. Yeah. Yeah. He's about yeah, 75 that ain't pounds. Me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, man. So there's this verse um, that's just been going through my head for the last couple of weeks, maybe three weeks. Um, and it's not speaking about revival in context. It's Galatians 3 3. And he's speaking basically to modern day, like you could say they're like Hebrew roots people, you know, people that get baptized into, into the Jesus and, you know, they're, they're Christians now. Um, and then they're like, you know what? I need to become Jewish, you know, even though they're Gentiles. And that's kind of like what's going on in, in Galatians three, you know, cause they're like, yeah, I'm Christian, but now I need to get circumcised. But and, and so Paul writes, are you so foolish having begun by the spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? But this verse has been stirring in me quite a bit as it regards or as it pertains to a revival. And I know that's taking a little bit out of context, but it just won't leave me alone. Because um, like when God, when God brings a revival, that's by the spirit. You know, that's totally a work of the spirit. And yet, like, as things start to get a little bit out of our comfort zone, the natural human inclination is to control, control it or make this better. You know what I'm saying? Like pastors are always thinking, how can I make this better? You know? Whatever better. They they have great intentions, too. Of course they do. Yeah. Pure intentions. Right. But it just keeps, this verse just keeps on coming back to me. Having been begun by the Spirit, are you now going to be perfected by the flesh? Like, are you going to perfect a revival through human means? Is that even possible? (laughs) Heck no, right? Am I off on this? It's not possible. No, it's not possible because... Even creation testifies to this order, Phil. Like when God made creation, right? What do you say? Like everything produces after its own, what? Its own kind. Yeah. Right? Like dogs don't produce cats. Dogs only produce dogs. And what you begin in the spirit 
has to produce after its own kind. Either you will have spiritual converts or you will have fleshly converts. Either you win the, the, the way you win them is the way you have to keep them. Everything produces after its own kind. It's a spiritual law that God wove into creation. You either win your converts by the resources of heaven and they become spiritual converts or you win them by the resources of men and they become fleshly converts. It's a conflict of kinds. Hmm. That's good. Is there anything you wanted to, to leave us with that you haven't said that you really want to get in? Yeah, I do. Okay. I want to I want to end with just one thing. Yeah. Because we've talked a lot about revival. We've talked a lot about what it is, what it isn't. We talked about what hinders it, what quenches it. We talked about where it starts, we talked about where it ends. But everyone listening to this podcast, including me, has to wrestle with our place in this story. Hmm. Right? Yeah. Because revival comes in partnership with people. It, it doesn't have to. God is sovereign. He can do anything he wants, but he chooses to do it in partnership with people. That's his choice. That's his sovereign choice. And, then, and apart from creation, when he created everything, you look at the Bible. And you'll be hard pressed to find any story in the Bible that doesn't involve God working in partnership with people. Almost every single story in the Bible goes like this. God is going to do something in this world. And then he starts looking for a person to work through and to work with. When he needed an ark, he found Noah. I mean, he didn't need Noah or an ark. He could have just killed every single thing and every single animal and every single person and every single bit of creation and just recreated it anew and afresh. Right? Hmm. He didn't need to save anything, but that's not what he did. He found Noah when he needed a people for his own. When he divided the nations amongst the divine council and all that stuff, right? He said, but I'm going to, Israel's going to be mine. And he needed a people. And he said this before Israel was even born. He made that prophetic declaration before, before he went out and found Abraham. But did he need Abraham to get a people of his own? Not if you believe John the Baptist, he could have made them out of rocks. Right. But he found Abraham. He could have just wiped out Egypt, sent in an angel, led Israel out to the promised land. But no, he found Moses. He could have caused the Midianites to suddenly evaporate or drop dead, but he found Gideon. And after he finds these people, they never just suddenly step into their destiny. They're often tried first until they're proved faithful. Like Joseph may have been a dreamer, but he never became the second in command until he served time in prison until he was sold into slavery by his brothers. Once they are proven faithful, then they're empowered. I mean, even salvation happened when the second person of the Trinity became man. And although Jesus never, ever sinned and he was fully God and fully man, the mystery of mystery is, is that he came to earth. He submitted himself to be baptized, even though he didn't need to be. And he went into the wilderness and allowed himself to be tempted by Satan, even though he didn't need to be. But he still submitted to the process that Abraham, Noah, Jacob, Joseph, and all the heroes of the faith did. Jesus wasn't above any of it, even though he could have been, because he was the Lamb of God, the spotless Lamb of God that took away the sin of the world. Think about that, man. And, and, and if you boil this whole thing down, man, to, to what I'm talking about, and I'm not a very learned man, 
As you can tell, I'm not a very well eloquently speaking man. I can't even say Smyrnia or, <laughs> or seminary right. Oh my gosh. But I'll tell you something, dude. The few things I know from the Bible is this, dude. God will revive us even if he just can find a small handful of people hmm. that are truly willing to repent and pray for it. And I know he desires to sow himself strong in this hour and bring holiness back to his church. He wants to refine us and empower us with holy fire. I mean, remember, man, Jesus chose 12 disciples or apostles on the day of Pentecost. There were only 120 people in that upper room. There, he only needed 70 people to go out, right? When he, sent, when he commissioned the 12, then he sent out the 70. Hmm. And he only needed 120 people in that upper room. He doesn't need your movement. He doesn't need your mega church. He doesn't need your programs. He doesn't need any of this. He just needs a faithful, small remnant. But we were, we've been talking about the, the book of revelation, right? And, and I'll throw this in for free. It's not in my notes, but I me mean, think about this, dude. Jesus is like rebuking all these churches saying, you think you're this, you think you're that, you think you're this, but you're none of it. And then he goes to one church and says, you know, you're broken. And you know you don't have much power or strength. You're fully aware of it. But behold, I set before you an open door that no man can shut. Hmm. He empowers the broken. He empowers those that are crying out. He empowers those people in upper room situation. And he only really needed one man on the day of Pentecost to preach that sermon. To cut people to their hearts. To cut them to the quick. They were crying out, much like Duncan Campbell an agony of soul, what must we do to be saved? And that one person, Peter, that one person, that one sermon, think about it, has led to millions of sermons being preached around the world up until this very day. All he needed, all he ever needed, was Peter, a sermon, and fire. I mean, think about this, man. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, the Bible says that Jesus is arrested. And Jesus is led away in chains and he's led away to this dark council that's putting on a sham of a trial. And Peter's like, I will never, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I'll give up my life. I will never deny you. And Jesus is like, you'll deny me three times before the rooster crows this morning. The Bible utters the most tragic sentence ever recorded about Peter's life. You want to know what it is? It says that Peter followed Jesus from afar off. He followed Jesus from afar off and he warmed himself by a fire, a strange fire. And people are like, we know you, you're that guy that hangs out with Jesus. And he's like, no, I don't. Three times. He even starts cursing Jesus, right? That's the fire. He followed Jesus from afar off. But then after the resurrection, Jesus is on the beach and he's by a fire again. He's laying a fire. He's cooking some fish. And Peter isn't following Jesus from afar off anymore. He jumps overboard, swims like a madman towards Jesus, rushes to that fire, gets in front of Jesus. Now he's warming himself by another fire. And Jesus asks him three times, in contrast to the three times he denied him, to love him and to serve him and to feed his sheep, to be a servant, to, to, to take away the pride and the fear of men and replace it with the fear of God. And when, and when Peter three times accepts that he's commissioned. And then on the day of Pentecost, they're praying. They've been praying for many days. They're in one accord. No fire falls till they're of one accord, 
one mind till they have all sat down. They're all jointly fitted into the body. They're not fighting amongst themselves anymore. Whereas a few years ago, they couldn't even go a day without fighting. Who was going to be the greatest? They all found their place. And now Peter encounters the final fire, the fire of the Holy ghost. He's been called. He's been tried. He's been commissioned. He's been found faithful. And now he's empowered. So let me ask you, where are you in this story? Are you following Jesus from afar off? Are you pressing in? Are you trying to find the fire of the Holy Ghost? Which fire do you find yourself at? Phil's been quoting Leonard Ravenhill. He's been posting Leonard Ravenhill on his Facebook pages. He's starting to see the the beauty and terror that is that man named Leonard Ravenhill. At one moment you're saying amen, the next moment you're saying ouch. It's like every other second with this dude. And Leonard Ravenhill speaks about this fire that I've been speaking about in his book, Why Revival Terries, and I'm going to read it, this passage on fire and prayer, and it's going to kind of sum up everything. And then after that, I'm done. You can pray, you can close us out, you can do whatever you want. Why don't you close us out in prayer after you read it? All right, cool, man. This is from Leonard Ravenhill's most excellent book, Why Revival Terriers. If you have not read this book, you need to read this book. This is an amazing book. I got my old beat-up copy here. It says, by its very nature, fire begets fire. If other combustible materials about, fire will only spread in its kind. See how great a matter a little fire kindles. Fire can never make ice, neither can prayerless pastors produce warriors of intercession. Yet one spark from an anvil may set a city on fire. From one candle, 10,000 others may take a light. The conflict of the ages is upon us. This unbiblical, distorted thing we call the church that mixes with the world and dishonors its so-called Lord has been found out for what it is in the eyes of people, a fraud. The true church is born from above. In it, there are no sinners and outside of it, no saints. No man can put another's name on the member's role and no man can cross another name off that role. This church, which is the Lord's, will bless the Lord if there is but a small remnant of people in that church that lives and moves and has its being in prayer. Prayer is its sole sincere desire. As the first atom bomb shook Hiroshima, so prayer alone can release the power that would shake the hearts of men. Sin mesmerized millions can only be moved to God as the church is moved of God for their lost condition. With every possible guile that he knows, the devil would snatch us from the closet of prayer. For in prayer, man is linked with God. And in that union, Satan is baffled and beaten. Prayer is not for defense. The shield of faith is for that. Prayer is our secret weapon. It seems secret to so many of the Lord's people anyways. Who of us, despite all that we have read, claim to know much about this work of prayer? We do not conquer Satan by prayer. Christ conquered him 2,000 years ago. The master prayer said, I will give you power over the enemy. That is the victory. But the soul is drawn out in prayer. True prayer 
is lonely. It's a time eater. In the elementary stages, its clock seems to drag. But later, the soul gets used to it. And when it gets used to it in this holy exercise, time flies when we pray. Prayer makes the soul tender. Notice we never pray for folks we gossip about, and we never gossip about folks for whom we pray. Because prayer is a great detergent that cleanses our soul of guilt. Well, brother, uh, thank you so much for taking the time tonight in the wee hours of Saturday <laughs> morning to uh, to share with us all your uh, your study and your experience and uh, scriptural insight on revival. And uh, just before we go, will you pray us out? Yeah, I'm just going to pray a very simple prayer. Yeah. I'm not a very wordy prayer. Um, I just, I'm just going to pray real simply this. And all of God's people just join with me and say amen in this. Father, forgive us for trusting in the arm of flesh to save us. Forgive us for wanting mercy and peace without righteousness. Father, forgive us of our prayerlessness. Father, forgive us. Forgive us of the things that we know that we should do, but we don't. Forgive us for the times that we know we should speak out and we don't. Forgive us for the times that we don't confess men before men, Jesus, as Jesus is confessing us before the Father. Forgive us for not dis, for, for, for just allowing doubtful habits in our lives and then making excuses for those doubtful habits. Father, there's a shaking coming to America. There's a shaking coming to this world. And I don't know, Lord, what you're going to do with America, and I don't know what you're going to do with the church. That's your sovereign thing. All I do know is that you've commanded us to pray and to find a place of tenderness before you. That's what prayer does. It tenderizes our soul, Lord. So more importantly, before I pray for anybody else, Lord, it's my hands clean. It's my hands pure. Have I been bent? Have I been broken? And honestly, Lord, not enough. Not enough. So forgive me for my failures and my shortcoming. More than anything, I just need to see Jesus. I need to see a clear revelation of Jesus. And a new clear revelation of the cross and the blood of Christ and the power of his resurrection. Because I am not. I'm not anywhere close to Jesus, even though I really try to be. Make me more like him. Make us more like him. Father, I pray for all the pastors that are listening. I pray for all the leaders that are listening. I pray for all the Sunday school teachers who are listening. I pray for all the lay people that are listening. I pray for everyone, Lord, that's somehow involved in some sort of church work. Father, would you open our eyes to the need of this hour? Would you call us to prayer? Would the prayer meeting be the most important meeting in our churches? 
And if it's not, would you break us until it is? In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen.